Um, good morning. My name is Ben Robertson, and I am the campus minister with Reform University Fellowship. Uh, so a special welcome to parents. Um, I, we're, we love your students at this church. Um, it's my privilege to be one of the ministers on campus and to, to serve and love them, and we're thrilled that you're here. And I would love to meet you in the lobby afterwards if you have time. Um, today we're looking at Psalm 1. Uh, so if you could open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Uh, in the, our, our Bibles that are provided in front of you, in the chair in front of you, it's on page 448, 448, Psalm 1. Uh, the Psalms uh, are the hymns of the Old Testament. What you are turning to at this moment is the hymn book of the Old Testament saints. This is a, a song that was sung by God's people and has been sung by God's people for centuries now. And it's a song about the good life, about the blessed man, about what it means to be truly happy. And so that is what we are going to be looking at today, what it means to live the good life. So Psalm 1, starting at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of a scoffer. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. These are heavy things. We'll need God's help. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word that is true, that is trustworthy, that is perfect. It is yours. We ask that we would see your face in your word this morning. We need the help of your spirit to do so. And so we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, because there is no other name through which we could ask. Amen. Life is a journey. I'm sure you've heard that before. I think that's an appropriate metaphor for what it means to live life. Life is a journey. It has a beginning and a middle and an end. And here we see in this great contrast that's drawn all the way through Psalm 1, a picture of the journey of life. Blessed is the man, the psalm begins, or happy is the man. And happy not just in the sense of fleeting happiness of shiny happy people with plastic smiles, but real, genuine, solid joy, a person whose life is the way that it's supposed to be. Someone whose life is the good life. So we're going to talk about this, this journey of life, and look at the contrast that runs through it and ask several questions about that journey. We're going to ask three questions. First, what's your source on this journey? What's your guide, I might say? What is your guide on the journey? How's the scenery along the way? And what's the destination? So let's look at those. First, who is your guide? Who is your guide? I took a trip to Europe with a friend. I, I did a semester abroad when I was in college. My friend Joel and I, we went around Europe. We did the, the college thing where you get on the, we were in England and we went uh, on the train under, underward, uh, uh, under the ocean uh, over to, to Paris and then we put on our backpacks and we tromped around Europe as college kids are supposed to do, I suppose. Um, and our guide was the idiot's guide, appropriately. Um, you've seen those, the Idiot's Guide to this, that, and the other thing. 
Um, and uh, I don't know why I was surprised, but the Idiot's Guide seemed to fall short uh, many times, at least the version uh, several years ago. Um, it was general. It was vague. Uh, sometimes the details were not quite precise. A map would leave roads off. We got lost a few times, and eventually, thankfully, my friend Joel had bought a better guidebook, and so we used that one instead. Uh, the good life. How do you live the good life? Where do you get your information? Where do you get your counsel? The psalm asks, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. I want to answer an objection really quick. You may hear that word in verse 1, sinners or wicked, and it appears later in the psalm, and you think, I thought we were all sinners. Isn't that what the other pastor just said a minute ago? Didn't we just confess that? A moment ago, yes, we are all sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one, and we all need to be forgiven by God. But these phrases, sinner, scoffer, wicked, there's a range of meaning in the sense that the psalmist is giving us and throughout all the wisdom literature when the, when the Bible describes sinners in this way, it's someone whose absolute posture is devoid of God. It is absent of him. Evildoers, if you will, people with an overarching character that is corrupt, frivolous, foolish, and destructive. And I think everyone has a category for what that might look like. So what does the psalmist say? He says, blessed is the man who does not walk or stand or sit with such people. The idea of walk, stand, sit is this progressively becoming more and more encamped, more and more entrenched. First we're walking along together, now we're standing idly together, and now I sit down and say, this is where I belong. This is what I listen to. The full image of a person whose system of advice and the shape of their worldview is based on the influence and recommendation of the evildoer, of the wicked, of the sinner. A quick application. The psalmist is not saying that we leave the world. The New Testament is very clear on that. Jesus was clear on that. When he prayed uh, in John 17, he said, Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. And Paul says uh, to the Corinthians, don't leave the world. I'm not saying... Don't be around people. And if you are here checking out Christianity, we aren't saying sinners go out. <laughs> no place for you here. Sinners, welcome. Uh, join the club. Um, however, what it is saying is who are your confidants? Who are the people that you trust? Whose opinion is weighty to you and matters in such a way that it actually shapes the way that you think, feel, and act? Whether it be a friend, a coworker, what you're reading, either in real books or on the internet, a very reliable source of information on the internet, <laughs> or television, or the culture at large, where do you seek the answers to the hard questions? Like, how should I spend my money? What sort of house and car should I have? Or what should my body look like? or other people's bodies, and what are they for? Or how far is too far the person I'm dating? What's your source for what's beautiful, or funny, or right, or good, or true? The Idiot's Guide? Or, here's the contrast, or the law of the Lord. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
on another trip that I took, a much better trip, my honeymoon, um, <laughs> Don and I, uh, a lot better than that trip to Europe with Joel, though he's a great guy. Um, <laughs> we went to Key Largo. We were married in December, and so it was the warmest place I could afford to take Don. And so we, we went down to Key Largo, and uh, we went sailing one day. A friend had connected us to a, a guy that, that she knew who had a boat, and he took us sailing. His name was Captain Rick. And while we were with Captain Rick, we said, where should we go eat? Tell us, uh, tell us um, we don't, we've, we've seen some of the nicer places, but tell us kind of a hole in the wall, only the locals know about it kind of place. And he said, oh yeah, I know just the place. It's called Mrs. Mac's Kitchen. And he told us exactly how to get there. He said, order the fried shrimp. Do you like fried shrimp? Yes, I love it. Get the fried shrimp. Do you like key lime pie? Who doesn't? Yes. He said, get the key lime pie. To this day, the best fried shrimp and key lime pie I've ever had in my life. Amazing. Why? Because our guide actually knew. He had been there. He didn't use another guidebook and give me the Cliff's Notes like the idiot guide does. But he had been there. He had tasted it. He knew what it actually was. He had experienced it. His delight is in the law, the law of the Lord. The Lord who made everything, who created everything, who knows this world in the way that it is supposed to be lived. But more than that, that's that phrase, the law. It's not, we hear the law and we think the rules, Right? Um, I'm going to meditate on the rules, and I'm going to make sure I keep the rules. But the, in, in the Hebrew, the word for law is Torah. And Torah was used by the Jews to include the whole of Scripture, not just the rules, though it includes some rules, quite a few, but the whole of the story, the whole of the story that points to the God who redeems his people, who seeks and saves the lost. Most fully, it points to Jesus, who came to do just that. It's a grand love story. The good life is a life that murmurs. It's a literal translation of meditates, that murmurs over the law of the Lord, his story of grace and redemption, his picture of the way the world should be and how it ought to be lived. And notice it says that on his law he meditates day and night. Not just your 15 minutes in the morning or 15 minutes before bed or if you're extra spiritual, 15 minutes in the morning and before bed, but that your whole life is being infused with God's word that you are seeking him, that you are meditating on his word, and it's a source of delight, it says. He delights in the law of the Lord. Is this your view of the Bible? That it's delightful? Something to think about all day? Something to dwell on? To build into your life? To permeate every moment? Or are you a legalist? And you have your 15 minutes a day or 20 minutes a day or 30 minutes a day. And it's your rule book. The law just means the law. I'm going to read it. It's going to tell me how to live. And I will dutifully fulfill that law. Check. Or do you view it as alive and real and relevant? The source of life and delight. I'm sure some of the most miserable people you know read the Bible every day. Wouldn't you say so? A lot of very angry people read their Bibles a lot. The Pharisees were that way, were they not? And those were the people on whom Jesus was the hardest because they missed it. They didn't get Psalm 1. They weren't living the blessed life. Or are you on the other extreme? You're not a legalist who reads every day. You think, you know what, Ben, I kind of get it. I'm spiritual but not really religious. And this is nice. I'll show up here now and then. But I don't really need this because I, quote, get it. 
So you dismiss God's word. It's outdated, archaic, weird, hard to understand who needs it. Either way, according to Psalm 1, you don't have a happy life. You're not living the good life. You're not using the right source. You've missed it. You need the true source, the scripture, the word of God that points us to Jesus himself, who is that word embodied. That should be our source. Our next question on the journey of life, we'll ask, how's the scenery? How is the scenery? What does the scenery look like in your life? Um, this sermon includes all of my best vacations. Uh, so the next one, um, Dawn and I, uh, three years ago, we got to go to Hawaii one summer uh, for three weeks. Um, I have a friend who's a youth pastor in Hawaii, and they were doing a youth retreat and needed a guest speaker. <laughs> it pays to have friends, right? So it's a little bit of nepotism there, but I got the gig. And um, they said, you know, the plane ticket costs the same either way. We're going to pay you by just buying the plane ticket. And there was a family in the church. Uh, he was um, uh, uh, an officer in the military. He was retiring. Uh, his daughter was graduating from high school, and they were going to celebrate her departure to college. And so uh, they were going to Europe for a month. And they said, Ben, Dawn, and little Naomi, she was not quite one yet, said, you, you can stay in our house while we're gone. And um, so long as you clean the pool a couple times while you're here. <laughs> I said, can we get a neighbor to clean the pool? I mean, I'm on vacation here. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. So in the middle, I, I spoke at the retreat, but the plane ticket was the same, so we got to stay. We got to enjoy it. And one of the earliest times, we went to the north shore of Hawaii. We got, because they said, you can use our cars. Here's the car keys. Everything that we have is yours. Enjoy it. So we were driving all over Oahu. I remember going up to the north shore, which if you're a fan of the television show Lost, where the plane crashed originally, that's where they filmed this, these beaches where we were is, is where that show was filmed. These beautiful, gorgeous beaches with the mountains behind us, the oceans, the white sands. We were practically alone. You could see about a half mile down, there were two or three other people. We just had it to ourselves. Along the side of the road, there were people selling um, pineapples that they would cut freshly for you. You could eat right there on the side of the road. There were trucks where they would stir fry shrimp for you. Um, there was this coffee shop in this little town right there where they were, uh, they were uh, cooking the beans, and he, the guy that was roasting the beans, beans, when we went in, he said, hey, we just roasted these. Let me grind them and make you a fresh cup. Would you like that? Yes, I would like that very much. <laughs> it was beautiful scenery, the taste, the smell. Everything about it was gorgeous. It was truly paradise and free. Unbelievable. <laughs> Here it talks about the tree planted by streams of living water. How's the scenery? Streams of living water. Bearing fruit in its seasons. This fruitful, what is fruit? It is beautiful. It is delicious. It is nourishing. It has value, not for the tree, but for us, for others. Does your life produce fruit in that way? That is beautiful, delicious, and nourishing to others. Here's how Paul picks up on that metaphor of fruit. You're probably familiar with it. He talks about the fruit, of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. I'll read them to you again. If you may know them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are you seeing that fruit in your life? Is the fruitfulness of your life blessing others with those things or 
Uh, on another part of our trip uh, in Hawaii, Dawn and I went to the famous Waikiki Beach, the most famous beach in the world. We thought, let's go down into Honolulu, let's check it out. We parked, and I remember walking through the hotels, down the sidewalk, and coming out on Waikiki Beach at first and looking around. And it was so overcrowded, you could barely walk through the beach. We thought we would go down there and stay for a while, but pretty soon we kind of looked at it and just said, this is kind of just like, there's sort of one mountain over there, but it's just sort of like any other beach. And then coming back, I noticed there's a swimming pool from one of the hotels. And I looked over at the swimming pool, and there are the chairs all around the pool, you know? Every chair was full. Some people in the water. And I just wanted to scream, what, are you crazy? Like, you could do this at any pool, anywhere. You flew across the Pacific Ocean to get here, and there's Band-Aids floating in the water. Like, what are you doing? This paradise is an hour away. Go rent a car. Stay in a less nice hotel. You are wasting your vacation, and you're in Hawaii. This is tragic. It's a waste. The wicked are not so, verse 4, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff, if you're unfamiliar with it, is the stuff that's around a grain. So you pick the grain and you, you grind it up to get to the kernel that's useful for food and nourishing. The chaff is the dusty stuff on the outside. Someone after, after the first service told me that they had once, they were from the Midwest and had picked, picked the grain and had rubbed it off and had decided to eat it like they did back in the olden days and just have himself a little snack. And they said that chaff was just right there in his hands. And he just sort of blew on it, a little puff. And he said, just the cloud just blew away. This cloud of dust just appeared in his face. He said, it doesn't even take a big gust of wind to blow away the chaff, just a little puff of air because it's weightless, as opposed to the tree that is rooted by the river. There's no substance, of no lasting value. And another thing to know about chaff is it is of no nutritional value whatsoever. In the ancient world, it was absolutely to be thrown away and trodden under their feet. It had no purpose at all, useless and fleeting, of no value. Paul in Galatians contrasts the fruit of the Spirit with the works of the flesh, and here's what he says. The works of the flesh are evident. They are this, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's quite a list, isn't it? Envies, orgies are alike, Paul says, things like these. What do they have in common? I'll take a few of the examples he uses. He talks about drunkenness. And when he uses the word drunkenness, he's not talking about making merry at Bilbo's birthday party, okay? He's talking about what we all know is drunkenness. And think about the words that we use for drunkenness. I was really wasted, right? I got smashed. I got hammered. Like even the slang that we use to describe absolute drunkenness are words of destruction and waste. So we think that bad things are bad because they're breaking rules, but what he's saying here is that no, it's not fruitful, it's wasteful. It's empty, it's valueless, it's destructive. 
sexual sin, sexual immorality, orgies, is a waste of good sexuality. Taking something that God made for a good purpose and using it for a purpose for which he did not create it. It's destructive and harmful, and it squanders something beautiful and good. Or divisions, envy, and fits of anger, these kinds of ideas, these relational things, how do they fit in the same list? Because they waste relationship. Rather than having love and harmony and forgiveness and reconciliation, I'm going to divide from you. I will have nothing to do with you. I will be angry at you. And I will squander the potential for love and fellowship and friendship and unity and delight that is right there in front of you when there's another person sitting across the table. It's not that the Bible doesn't want us to have fun. But it wants to point us to something better. Is your life frivolous and wasteful? What does the scenery look like? Fits of rage? Or joy and hope and love and peace? How's your scenery like now? And do you want something better? Don't you want it to be fruitful? Don't you want it to be beautiful and beneficial? Well, the next question about the journey, and the last one. What's the destination? What's the destination? Where are we going? Have you ever heard it said, it's not the destination, it's the journey? People say that, and a lot of, a lot of Christian books, actually, lately are, are, making, are using sort of that catchphrase. I hear that a lot. Um, I think that's just one of the most absurd things we ever say when we want to describe spiritual life. That's crazy. I mean, here's how we know it's crazy, because it's not even true in actual reality of a real journey, correct? Like, hey, we're going to go on this really great trip, and you can sit in first class, and the pretzels are great. Um, and, okay, great, I'm, I'm on board. Well, where are we going? Uh, Alcatraz, and you're going to live there forever. You know, <laughs> I, hey, man, it's not the destination, it's the journey. Come on. Like, it's going to be great. And so, that, and like, that's how we decide that we're going to live our lives, according to that metaphor? I'm going to judge my spirituality by something that doesn't even make sense in basic, concrete, physical reality. It's a bad idea. It's not true, of, not true of an actual journey, much less life itself. The journey no doubt matters. I know what we mean by that. When we mean it in the best sense, we're saying, I'm in process, I'm not there yet, I need to grow, and the journey does matter. The journey matters, no doubt. But the destination is what makes all the difference, right? That's really what it's about. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's the destination. That's a tough pill to swallow, is it not? This idea of judgment. It may be one of the reasons why you're not so sure about Christianity. And one of the things you're trying to feel out at this church, is this a judgmental church? Sounds like it so far. There's a lot that we could say about it, and there was actually Brandon preached an excellent sermon on judgment a few weeks back that you should go to the website and download if you weren't here from Genesis. But for now, I want to say this. I think we see in this psalm what C.S. Lewis talks about in The Great Divorce. Um, this idea that judgment and hell, in one sense, through one lens, are the logical result, the therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, of the trajectory of your life, the trajectory of the soul going into eternity, as Tim Keller describes it, and that is hell. Listen to this quote by, by C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce. It says this, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. Hear that? Envy, strife, jealousy, rivalries. 
but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize the grumble and wish you could stop. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question only, I'll add, of God sending us to hell. In each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. You ever experienced that? You ever had that grumble? That complaint begin to grow and fester? I have. You ever nursed a grudge? Like me? What do you do when you have that little conflict and then you walk away immediately? How dare she say that to me? Where does he get off making that? Who does he think that he is? And immediately you start twisting what they say. You put in bold the negative things that they said and you delete the negative things that you said. And you put in bold and italics the nice things that you tried to say. And you delete the things where they said they were kind of sorry and they see what you were saying. And pretty soon you've got this villain over here who was evil and wanted to kill you. I can do that within minutes. When you're nursing that grudge and the anger builds and you get self-absorbed and you think, how dare they? Who do they think they are? Well, if you can do that in a few minutes or a few days or a few years, some of you have had grudges going for years, right? Well, imagine if God let go of the grace that holds that grudge back, that holds that grumble back and just let you go, not just for a year, not just for 10 years, but for eternity. That's why the psalmist says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. It's the trajectory of the soul, let go for eternity. It won't stand, won't last, because their life is like chaff, grounded in foolishness. Or, as the psalm continues to contrast, or are you vitally connected to and 100% dependent upon the God who saves, who reveals himself in his word and most fully through Jesus Christ, says the, the Lord, verse 6, knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. And it's not just that God is cognizant of the righteous, but it says that he knows their way. It's the sense of welcome and embrace. It's a relational word. God knows the way of the righteous. The destination being in the company of God's people, the congregation of the righteous, made righteous by God's grace and embraced by their heavenly Father for eternity. In the presence of Jesus himself, being known and loved forever with all of God's people. It's the other destination. What does your journey look like? What do you want it to look like? The psalm is laying this contrast out in front of us and putting it forward and saying, which would you rather have? In the early 80s, Steve Jobs, the CEO of Apple, had a meeting with a guy named John Scully, who you probably haven't heard of, but he's something of a marketing genius. And at the time, he was the number two, the number two man at Pepsi. You've heard of Pepsi? Right? He, he had done well for himself. He had a very lucrative job at a, one of the biggest companies in America. He was doing quite well. And Apple was this sort of startup thing. They'd gotten out of Steve Jobs' garage at this point, but they hadn't really quite hit the market. And Steve knew he needed somebody to sort of get them out there, to take them to the next level. So he invited John Scully to lunch. The two of them were having lunch and talking. He was trying to persuade him to come over to Apple from Pepsi. Come join our team. 
And it wasn't going well because he was the number two guy at Pepsi. I mean, it just not <laughs> Steve Jobs had nothing really to offer at this point. And when he saw the direction that it was going, Steve Jobs, the story goes, he said this. He stopped and he said, look, John. He leaned over the table. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water? <laughs> or do you want to come with me and change the world? He left Pepsi Company. Think about it. The iPhone or a 12-ounce can that puts diabetics in the hospital? Like, which do you want to be more responsible for? <laughs> he bought it. He walked away from the millions. Man, he did pretty well at Apple, too. <laughs> but that's the psalmist saying, what do you want to do? Which life would you rather have? And it's Jesus who fully fulfills this psalm saying, come to me. Jesus who didn't just reject the counsel of the wicked, but actually took the, stood in the counsel of Satan and said, no, I'm not going to turn that stone into bread. I'm going to trust my heavenly father. Jesus, who not only produced fruit in his own life, who lived the most fruitful life of any person ever, but then sends his spirit who, who grows that fruit in us. Jesus, the only one righteous, the only one who deserved to be the congregation of the righteous himself, the only one who deserved to stand in the judgment, chose not to stand in the judgment. But let the judgment fall upon him so that you and I through him could become righteous. So that you and I through him could be known by the Lord and know him. So that we could be embraced. So that the Lord could know the way of the righteous and embrace us forever. What do you want your life to look like? Go to Jesus. Let's go to him now in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are good, that your word is good, and that your word is true. And now as we come to your table, Lord, we praise you and we pray, feed us now. Feed us forever. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.